Thanks for downloading the South Everett Foursquare podcast. This is Pastor Chris Pepler, and you've joined us for our Advent series, The Women of Christmas. Together, we're exploring the vital role that women played in the coming of Christ. You can find us every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at the Village on Casino Road, or visit us on our website, southeverett.org. Enjoy today's podcast.
to uh, move into the second week of our Advent series, The Women of Christmas. Last week, if you didn't have a chance to uh, participate in that message, it's available online. But we laid out a framework for what it means that God uses men and women equally in the ministry. I thought this was a timely uh, sermon series, an Advent series, given that our Foursquare movement is celebrating its 100th anniversary and our founding uh, our founding mother was Amy Simple McPherson, and so this movement that is now uh, an 8.8 million person family in 150 countries around the world uh, was started by a work of God through Amy Simple McPherson in 1923. And it is clear to us throughout the scriptures that the Lord uses men and women equally in the ministry, and we laid out our theology and our explanation and understanding of that last week. And so having done so, we want to dive right into the Christmas story over the next three weeks, highlighting three specific individuals in the ministry, Elizabeth, Mary, and Anna, who were all used to usher Jesus into the world. And so my hope for us, especially in these next three weeks, is that we would simply rest in the story and we would allow the Lord to show something to us. And so I just want to share this passage from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 4. This will be up on the screen. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come and make us gods, lower sea gods, who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. This, this fellow, this, this, this one who was, who was pouring his life out for the salvation of all of these people, and these ungrateful people have just started referring to him as this guy. Whoever this guy is, wherever he went, we don't know where he is. Uh, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel. These are the ones who brought you up out of Egypt. Interesting that these were Elizabeth's ancestors. These were Mary's ancestors. These were Anna's ancestors. When I thought about family trees and the things that uh, past generations in our own family lines have done, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of effort to break old family patterns. What we will see in the next few weeks is that Elizabeth, Mary, and Anna were three of those who did a lot of hard work to break old rhythms of brazen infidelity, of brazen idolatry. It was from their family line, and they took steps to say, it was with our family, but not so with us as it pertains to waiting on the Lord. It was 40 days that Moses was up on the mountain. In fact, he went eight times up and down. But on the last time that he went up the mountain, he stayed for 40 days. And he received the commandments. Everything that Israel would need for life and vitality. And the people just got really fussy and impatient. He was so long in coming down the mountain. So long. We couldn't even wait for God. 
And what we see in Exodus is a direct link between impatience and idol worship. Think about that. The people got impatient, and so they built some idols. This idea of waiting. And when we don't wait well, this, I hope, might frame our next three weeks in anticipation of the coming of King Jesus. When we don't wait well, we tend not to worship well. To wait literally means to stay put or be present or delay action until something happens. So in the advent, in the expectation of the coming of King Jesus, we wait. And waiting isn't something that we've always been great at, but these three women show us how to wait really, really well. They are foundational examples of what it means to wait and to trust and to pray until the Lord responds. And I came back again to the verse that we talked about over Thanksgiving weekend, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These were Paul's words to the church at Thessalonica. But they were modeled really, really well by these women. And so what I want us to do is read the story, the passages that we will focus on. There's three of them in this story. And I just want to rest and wait in the passage. And we'll bring suggestions of things, discoveries made. But again, the, the hope is that the Lord would just give us something, some observation as we wait that he would speak to us. It says in Luke Chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. In this, the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the customs of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 10. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. <laughs> and now you will be silent and unable to speak 
until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. These interesting parallels of a person, of a representative sent to receive something from God, and they waited. But they waited a little bit differently this time. Why he'd stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. What I was struck with first is that when the Lord calls us into his service, he likely calls us into situations that are already precarious. I'm a baseball fan. There's a starting pitcher in a baseball game. There are relievers in the bullpen. And the starting pitcher keeps pitching until things aren't going so well. Until there's runners on base or people are scoring runs or his arm gets tired. And then they bring in a pitcher from the bullpen. So relievers are showing up in baseball games every day, every other day. And a reliever would tell you that they would prefer to show up in what is called a clean inning which means that the manager decides at the end of the sixth inning that the starting pitcher is done. And the reliever can go out to start the seventh inning, but oftentimes they'll run the starting pitcher into the seventh inning, and he might give up a run, he might give up a hit, he might give up two hits. There might be runners on second and third base with one out in an inning up by a run, and then they go to the bullpen. That's called a dirty inning. When a pitcher has to come into a game and it... There's not a clean set of circumstances. There's already runners on base, but Lord, it's not my fault. But you got to deal with it. Right? We so often see people being called into the Lord's service in a dirty inning. The situation wasn't good to begin with. And this story picks up and it tells us, Luke tells us that the story wasn't good to begin with. Because he says, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So there was a lot to be understood by the original audience when they heard the words in the time of King Herod of Judea. He ruled over all of Israel. There's a map here. Zach, if you can throw that up. A picture of the area where he ruled. We're going back to Acts 1.8. We hear these words. You will be my present witness in in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And we pick up the story and we find out about King Herod. And we find out about the Romans for the very first time. King Herod was king of Judea, of Samaria, and all the way up into Galilee. There wasn't two kings in those spaces, there was only one. And he wasn't even fully Jewish. He wasn't from the line of David. He was appointed by the Roman Senate as the king of the Jews. He had jurisdiction over all of that place. He'd been in power for 40 years leading up into this point, and the people knew that he was bad news. Now, he did some good things. Rot leaders can do some good things, and we have to remember that the Lord appoints every leader. And he pulls every leader out of power. 
And he puts them in power and he pulls them out and, and he did some good things. He helped with the temple. He did a full remodel. Things were nicer in the temple because of the things that King Herod was doing. But it likely wasn't because he cared about the people. It was a political move to keep those in power happy with him. And he would wink, wink, nod, nod to the Roman leadership, even as he built the temple back for the people, by putting the Roman eagle right at the top of the entrance to the temple. It's just like, a, hey, I know this is for us, but we see you, Rome. We see you. We would later find about Matthew, the tax collector, who was probably in the same sort of relationship with the Roman government. He was getting something on the side at expense of the people. And so people didn't like King Herod as any more than they would eventually like Matthew, the tax collector, because he was in cahoots with the leadership. He was interested in pleasing his Roman superiors more than he was taking care of the people that were before him. And we also know ultimately that Herod was responsible for the brutal massacre of countless numbers of Jewish babies in his effort to wipe out this baby Jesus. So clearly he didn't have the people's interest in mind. All of this was born from his own insecurities because, you see, he wasn't fully Jewish. He was only partly Jewish. And so his insecurities about what he wasn't were not submitted to the Lord. It was submitted to his own flesh, and so he started acting out of that place. Why would a corrupt, power-hungry king want to make space for this baby that everyone was starting to call the new king of the Jews? He could be replaced, and so he acted out. That's the context. That's the dirty ending that Zechariah and Elizabeth walk into. This is when they're called to serve. Things are not perfect. Things are not peaceful, but they are peace makers, not peacekeepers. They were called to sacrifice of themselves in a horrible context to bring peace to the world. Now we know it says here that Zechariah was a Jewish priest. These priests were in charge of working in the temple. That was their job at the time. There were more than 20,000 priests in Israel. More than 20,000 Far too many for them to serve in the temple all at once. These priests were broken down into 24 different divisions. And if we go to 1 Chronicles 24, you can find the list where King David, a thousand years before, had established the 24 different divisions of the priests. So this had been going on for a thousand years. It could have become something that was quite mundane. I think we could imagine that this was happening that... Every week, a different division was going in to the temple to offer incense in the place, the most holy of holies, for a week. And then they would take half a year off from those responsibilities while all 24 divisions went through the process. And then they would serve a second week in the different half of the year. But they would serve and this routine, would come and it would go. But any one of these priests getting called to go in for the week and present the incense in the most holy of holy places, that would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Even though it was always happening, getting to go in and offer incense in the holy of holies was something that you would only do once in your life. Verse 6 mentions that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the eyes of God. They were righteous in the sight of God and... God was still using them within a corrupt system. Not just the Roman system that was corrupt, because that's the larger context. 
There's a king who's half Jewish that doesn't have the good of the people in mind. But then there's also corruption within the church. Amazing when you start thinking about this. That there's brokenness within the church. There's brokenness in the larger political context in which the church sits. And we're just broken people. Same today. What do we choose to do about that? With brokenness within the church that exists within the context of a bigger broken system. We wait. We wait on God. We wait for him to come and do what only he can do in the midst of our mess. Zechariah and Elizabeth were beautiful examples of what it looked like to just be faithful. I know things are a mess, Lord, but I'm just going to be faithful today. More and more I'm learning to just try to realize, like, yep, it's a mess. What can I do to be faithful right in front of me today? This was the same group of people three decades later that Jesus would be calling out for their hypocrisy. I want to fast forward to Luke 11 real quick and just look at Jesus' interactions with these same kind of religious leaders some 30 years in the future. This is from Luke 11, 37 through 39. It says, When Jesus finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus didn't wash his hands before the meal. How awkward. We all got busted by that by our mamas at some point in time. Then the Lord said to the Pharisee, Now, then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside of the cup make the inside also? But now, as for what it is inside of you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus is speaking to this. He goes, the outside of your cup is so clean, but the inside is so dirty. We all recognize this sometimes when we're unloading our dishwasher. The outside of the cup is clean, but we're like, oh, that needs to go through the wash a second time. Jesus is essentially saying, you need to go back in the dishwasher one more time. And by the way, keep an eye out for Zechariah and Elizabeth, because not only was the outside of their cup clean, the inside of their cup was remarkably clean as well. Their hearts were in it. Their hearts were in it. They followed the regulations, but they were clean inside. Zechariah and Elizabeth were chosen by Lot, it says. It was happenstance. But I believe that the Lord had his eyes on the people that he wanted to use to usher into the world, the one who would usher Jesus into the world. The Lord employed their activities for some really magnificent kingdom work. So Zechariah was tending to his duties in the temple. It's thought that Elizabeth was occupied with making space in their home for those who would come to discuss temple matters in their home. So they were working together. They were working in tandem to serve the Lord. And these were very faithful, generous people. But here's the rub of discipleship. And we lose sight of it so often. I lose sight of it so often that righteousness in the sight of God, which literally means to be in right standing with God, does not often lend itself towards pain-free living. It just doesn't. We can be righteous in the sight of God and deal with a lot of pain all at the same time. I was in a conversation with Brian Holmes this week, who's going into his third month of dealing with a neck injury that just doesn't seem to be getting better. Brian Holmes when he's healthy, he shows up here before the sun comes up to begin setting these chairs up, unlocking the buildings, rolling things around in and outside of the Connex box. And he does it so faithfully and so joyfully. And it's the way that God made him. It's his act of worship. He loves to set up as much as Chris and Chris love to lead worship. 
He, it's his gift. And right now, Brian can't give his gift like he wants to. He's got to guess what? Wait. 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 And so I call Brian. A lot of times when I'm driving right now, because Brian is also my hockey mentor. He's the one that's helping me understand more about the Seattle Kraken. Because I watch a lot of these games and I don't understand what's going on, so I'll call Brian. But it's just something that we can talk about that isn't his pain and his waiting. And we have great conversations. If you want to know about hockey, talk to Brian. He knows a lot. But in the midst of that, we were talking about his pain for a minute. He goes, you know what, though? Like, whoever said that God was going to allow us to serve and, and suffering wouldn't be part of the equation. He said that to me on Tuesday while I was driving on 128th, merging onto I-5 to come up here. And it's like, ah, you're right. And God bless you for knowing that and understanding that and recognizing that and accepting that. Uh, he's, he's very open to having people reach out and connect with him. Uh, a few of us are actually going to go up to his house uh, next week and, and lay hands and pray for him as he continues to find a pathway towards recovery. But it, we're not like almost there. Like he might be back next week. It's going to be a minute. And Jolene, we're just standing with you. Um, you are so faithful, and we, we love you and we love your family, and uh, we see what you're walking through. And uh, Thanks for being humble enough to allow us to walk with you in it, um, because not everyone does that. Sometimes people shut that out, but you are choosing to stay in community with people, and, and you're blessing us by allowing us to walk with you and be a blessing to you. And you are one of the stronger people that I know. You go about doing everything that you're called to do and now everything that your husband is doing as well as you care for your kids. And you do it without complaint. You do it with joy. And uh, it's a remarkable example. So, yeah, it says, the word says that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So all the more we ought boast about our weaknesses. So I don't know if they had like neck issues and back pain or different things like that, but it does say in verse 7 that Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless. And Elizabeth was not able to conceive because they were very old. <laughs> but they just kept going about their business, recognizing that suffering was a part of the equation. This is interesting because given their cultural context as Jewish leaders in the first century, the absence of a child or multiple children would have been really hard to reconcile with their acts of genuine faithfulness. Because children were associated with faithfulness. If you were faithful, you would have children. So somewhere there's a hiccup in the system. Something isn't working right. Lord, we're faithful, but there's no children. So are we really faithful? And back in first century Judaism, all the responsibility for childbearing was on the woman. If a woman was not getting pregnant, it wasn't the man's fault. There couldn't possibly be anything wrong with the man. This is sitting and resting on the shoulders of a woman. And everyone in her context would have been wondering, well, she looks faithful on the outside, but something must be dirty on the inside because she ain't having any kids. That was the pressure she sat with and faithfully continued to serve and faithfully continued to invite into her home all of these people who would have been questioning I tell you what, if someone's questioning my motives or my intent or my integrity, guess who I don't want to invite into my home? And it says that she made space. We understood that her job would have been to make space for people to come and discuss temple matters. 
And so this question would have been rattling in their head before the first Christmas. How can we possibly be this faithful and yet at the same time be so childless? The wrestling was real. It says in verse 10, uh, And then a time of incense to burn the incense came, and all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So here's this moment. It would have been the case that Elizabeth would have been in the outer court, the women's court. There was a place outside the Holy of Holies where women would have stood, and she would have been there praying. And they were praying and they were waiting outside of the Holy of Holies. And let's turn to Zechariah for a minute because he is the one going into the Holy of Holies. You see, the presence and the proximity of God was still a very frightening thing before the birth of Christ. We're still dealing with a God out there. Very quickly, we move to the, to the God with us in Jesus. And then we move to the God in us at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But right now, in this moment, God is still out there somewhere. He's still in cloud and fire. And his home is the actual temple. The brick and mortar temple is his home. And so it was a frightening thing to go into the temple. And the priest who would go into the temple to burn the incense in the morning and the afternoon for seven straight days would wear bells on, on his belt. Because if you're moving, bells make noise. But if you stop moving, the bells stop making noise. If the bells stop making noise, something has gone horribly wrong in the presence of God. And so they wore bells because they were waiting to make sure that the priest didn't do something wrong in the presence of God and get struck dead. But in verses 11 through 13, we see Zechariah at his post for the week to come was offering this incense. There's nothing that he could have done to prepare for his big moment except for just be faithful and obedient. I started thinking about the things that God has called us into that sometimes we can't fully be prepared for except to be faithful and obedient day after day in the midst of hardship. He was humble. He was obedient. For the first time in 400 years, 400 years, God breaks his silence. Because from Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence. There's no prophetic word. And so when we look right here, Bible pages are so thin. But when we look right here, there's 400 years separating this from that in terms of hearing God's voice. And the people of God were used to hearing his voice. And here it is in this temple in this moment that this angel shows up and he speaks. And his prayers were answered in the book, The Women of Christmas, that we're looking at. The author, Liz Curtis Higgs, gives some consideration to the prayers which were answered in that moment. Clearly, their prayers for a kid were answered. You're going to have a son. A son is coming. I'm going to answer your prayer. But there was this other prayer that these priests would pray every time they went into the temple, and it was the redemption of the nation of Israel, the people of God. They would pray for that. Isn't it interesting that God was giving a son who would make space for another son who would be the redemptive power of a nation and the world? All these prayers were being answered in the midst of his faithfulness in your prayers. Let us not, in our prayers, let us not stop being faithful and waiting well. Because when we wait well, we worship well. But when we don't, we don't. We get to wait on the Lord for a child, for this nation. Zechariah was waiting, but then even in his response, he's so human. He's like, but Lord, but Gabriel, I'm old. You see my wife? She's old. We're old. We can't do, how will this be? 
And I'm reminded too that sometimes in the waiting, it's okay to just be quiet. Because when I don't wait, I open my mouth too much and I say stupid stuff. And the Lord's like, let me help you. Just shh. We talked about women being silent in church. That in those verses that it says the women should be silent in church, it's a different word besides shh. It's consider deeply. But here it means shh. Like stop talking. Like you should just stop talking. Zechariah. And he did for five months. He stopped talking. For he couldn't even speak for five months. So when he finally came out, he was unable to, to imagine the scene. He's it's like Pictionary or charades or whatever it is when you're trying to make a thing happen. What's that game called? Is that charades when you're making a thing happen? You can't use your words. So imagine what's going on. They've been waiting forever, but they were waiting faithfully. And he's come out and he can't speak. So he can't actually communicate to anybody out there what he's seen or that John the Baptist would be coming. He can't communicate any of that. He can't even verbally express to his wife that she will become pregnant. So that's an interesting nonverbal conversation that must have been taking place when they got home. Because eventually she found out that she would be pregnant, but they didn't want other people. Thank you, Kim. That was very, yep. (laughs) I love when you're here, Kim. Yes. They didn't want anyone to know. So he came out. He couldn't even pray the priestly blessing, right? You know, the one that goes, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine about you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's the prayer he would have prayed, but he didn't because he couldn't. I don't know if somebody else prayed it, but they went home for five months. What was that like? What was that five months as like, well, Elizabeth now waited and became pregnant. But would she tell anybody? It says she didn't. It says she stayed in seclusion for five months. The women's Bible commentary says, uh, it would have been better to savor in private her precious secret rather than attempt to explain it to those who would not accept it. I thought that was really interesting. So she waited because she knew that those around her would be like, yeah, right. That, that's not, that can't, there's no way. But the Lord said, wait, you're going to get pregnant even though you're old. God works in, in this moment the disconnect between Elizabeth's righteousness and her barrenness was answered once and for all. Luke 1, 39-45. In the midst of that, what Lauren will talk about next week is that Mary also had a visit from the angel. And she got some news about having a baby. And so in 39, it says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home. By the way, that was probably a nine or ten day journey on foot through three mountain passes for a teenage girl to go see her Elizabeth, her relative. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The mother of my Lord? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So 
the baby.com website says that it's somewhere between 16 and 24 weeks that a mom starts to feel a baby kick. Is that about right? Somewhere in that period of time. So interesting that it was five months. Because that puts you right in that range when a mom would start to feel a baby kick. And it was five months after that Elizabeth received this word, that Mary got her word, and then Mary showed up after this nine or ten day journey, and the baby kicked. The baby leapt. She rushes off to see her relative. The baby kicks. The baby leaps. In this moment, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit with individuals would come and go prior to Pentecost. The Spirit would come, and then there's evidence that says that the Spirit would, would, he would rest, and then he would go. He would rest, and he would go for a specific purpose at a specific time. But universally, the Holy Spirit wouldn't be poured out on all people until Acts chapter 2, and never on a Gentile until Acts chapter 10. It was only for Jewish people. There's all sorts of evidence in the Old Testament of the Spirit showing up with Noah, with the 70 elders that received the Holy Spirit in Numbers chapter 11. With King Saul, the Spirit of the Lord came, and then the Spirit of the Lord left. There's other examples of the Spirit hovering over the water. So the Holy Spirit wasn't a new invention at Pentecost. He showed up and showed up differently. First evidence of that in the New Testament was this woman. What was the evidence of her filling? Well, she prophesied. She prophesied a blessing over her relative, and as far as I can tell, she was the very first person to pray a blessing over the incarnate, unborn baby Jesus. Look back through the text. No one else has not recorded that anyone else prayed a blessing over Jesus before Elizabeth did. This, the baby John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from before birth. I'm like, whoa. So it's the simultaneous feeling of the Spirit in the presence of Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, that Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and the baby leaps for joy and is filled with the Spirit. So in the midst of this revelation, we find these two remarkable occurrences, that the Lord reveals to Elizabeth that Mary is pregnant, because who told her that? Nobody. She didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. She showed up. She said, you're pregnant. And secondly... The Lord reveals to Elizabeth that the baby inside her is also the Messiah. In verse 43, But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We want to talk about women in ministry. We talk about how Jesus was revealed for the first time to women at his resurrection. He was also revealed for the first time to women at his inception. She recognized the first confession of Jesus in the New Testament is this woman, Elizabeth, my Lord. Why would the mother of my Lord come to me? Luke 1, beginning in verse 57. So Mary sings a song. It's a beautiful song. Lauren will talk about it next week. But in verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. They shared her joy. Remember the people that she didn't want to tell that she was pregnant? Well, at some point you've got to like, you know, it's just obvious. And so she found that place. But it says that they shared her joy. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, nope, nope, he is to be called John. Verse 61, they said to her, but there is no one among your relatives who has that name. 
Then they made signs back to charades to his father to find out what they would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet because, again, you can't speak, you can't hear. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the whole countryside of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, when then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. There's a lot going on there. Amazing the way that God works with faithful people who are questioning whether or not their faithfulness is enough. The reward comes not as we understand it, but it comes at the right time and according to God's understanding. We read that this joy which had come to Elizabeth was now also to be the joy of her relatives and her neighbors. These are the very same individuals she sought to keep this news from. But at the right time, there was a right time to share the news. And it was evident that the Holy Spirit had been upon her, which gives her joy. So we see God using women in, in, in really remarkable ways in this story. But not, at, not without great cost. When we think about the cost, what was the cost going to be? What was it going to cost her? She was going to have to risk to hope. What are the things that we would want to hope for, but the hope is so risky that sometimes we just don't take that step because we could fail, because there could be pain, because there could be social friction. Elizabeth, to get this baby, was going to have to deal with a whole bunch of social friction to get there. Same with Mary, for an entirely different reason. One was expecting a baby, the other one, quite honestly, never could have been in that moment. And it created social friction for both of these women in their context. But hope is risky to get the baby, to get the promise. We have to be able to walk in a space of unknown and wait on the Lord to answer in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. This is where God can do miracles, is in these places. It doesn't come with a clean slate. It can be a dirty inning sometimes. You've got to come in with runners on base. You've got to just do what God has called you to do in the midst of the context he's called you to do it in. This last Thursday evening, I was sitting in the home of a woman who has an adult son who's been floundering in drug addiction for half of his life. And this mom had already lost loved ones to drug addiction due to overdose. Multiple people in her family had died due to drug overdose. She just hoped that her son would not be another one of those individuals Here's someone faithfully serving God in this pain that they can't make stop. They just have to wait. But here's the dilemma. If she allowed him to continue to stay in the home, she wouldn't have to worry about him dying on the street. But if she continued to let him use in the home, he could die right there in front of her. Sounds like a no-win situation. Because if she set some rules in place and set some things up to keep the house safe, he might bounce and end up back on the streets where she wouldn't know where he was. She hopes that he can get clean, but that hope comes with risk and it's scary. And so we prayed with her friend who was there and started talking about viable ways for her son to maybe exit 
that scenario. But again, that's the Lord's timing. So Elizabeth, in an entirely different set of circumstances, had to lean dangerously into hope for what she did not have. This mom does not have a son who is free from drug addiction yet, but she hopes. And I can't believe she's still hoping. I was challenged by the depths of her hope sitting here. She hasn't given up. Elizabeth didn't give up. Mary didn't give up. Anna didn't give up. Simeon didn't give up. They waited faithfully better than the Israelites did at the base of Mount Sinai. They're like, is there a cow around here? We're bored. They waited. Where are we waiting right now? That's our question. We're going to spend just a few minutes in our groups. What about Elizabeth's story stands out to us the most? But second question, what hopes exist inside of you that might require time waiting in the valley of the shadow of death to see come to pass? We all have moments like this where we're just stuck. We don't know what the next step is. It feels like if we go one direction, there's a horrible consequence. And if we go the other, there's a horrible consequence. The Holy Spirit always makes another way as we wait on him. He always, there's always a third option. And the enemy would want us to get fixated on the one or the other. But as we wait on the Lord, there is a third way. There's another way. He makes a way. So, Lord, we just thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the influence of faithful followers of Yahweh, faithful followers of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, all throughout the scriptures. Lord, you give us examples of people who were used faithfully by, by you, Lord. And their circumstances were messy, they were complicated, they couldn't fix the greater cultural problems at play, but they just did what you called them to do in the place where you called them to do it, and they were filled with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, the same presence and spirit that is with us today, in us and through us, Lord. Lord, make a way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.